Hello, and welcome to the A to Z of the Future podcast. My name is Alexander Thomas. This is the fourth episode in our series on transhumanism. We're going to continue our exploration into the so-called three supers of transhumanism by focusing today on super happiness, sometimes known as super well-being. When we think about the three supers, it is quite easy to quantify longevity. We already do it by celebrating birthdays and counting years. It's hard to quibble with the argument that average human life expectancy has increased a great deal over the last couple of hundred years. Superintelligence is more complex. Intelligence is a less well-defined concept. We have IQ tests, but they are highly dubious and contested measures, usually biased towards certain cognitive capacities. But happiness and well-being are even trickier to define. Transhumanists tend to prefer to focus on quantifiable measures. They feel more scientific and certain. Well-being or happiness are more philosophical and contentious ideas than rigid scientific ones, open to more debate about what might constitute enhancement. This might explain why the majority of transhumanist discourse focuses on expanding lifespans or merging with superintelligent AI. David Pierce, though, has dedicated a lot of time and effort dreaming of a world where suffering no longer exists and pleasure is almost boundless. We'll spend much of today's episode probing David Pierce's ideas. First of all, David explains why super happiness should be an important part of the transhumanist imaginary. The third strand of transhumanism, as I say, I'm being very crude and simplistic, is super happiness. This is the idea that it's going to be technically possible to use biotechnology to phase out the biology of pain and suffering and misery that has been endemic to Darwinian life over the past 540 million odd years and replace misery and malaise with gradients of intelligent bliss. Maybe, and this is the super happiness bit, gradients of intelligent bliss that are orders of magnitude richer than anything physiologically accessible today. Essentially, a a different architecture of mind. And if today life crudely exists in a kind of hedonic range of, let's say, minus 10 to hedonic zero to plus 10, there is nothing in principle to stop us phasing out experience below hedonic zero altogether and replacing it with this new hedonic regime. Ratcheting up hedonic range, hedonic set points, so one could imagine a civilization of, let's say, plus 70 to a plus 100. These ideas of hedonic range or hedonic set points might sound unfamiliar, but David will be referring to them along with other notions such as hedonic tone and the hedonic treadmill quite often. He has even written a manifesto called the Hedonistic Imperative. Essentially, imagine a scale of pleasure and pain. You may feel that pleasure and pain are qualitative and cannot really be reduced to a quantifiable hierarchy. But for David, the extent to which we are capable of feeling pleasure or pain is vital. He wishes to extinguish the former and engineer an excess of the latter. And as he points out, he isn't the first to imagine a world without suffering. And the idea of a world without suffering, the end of suffering, is implicit in many of the world's great religious traditions primarily Buddhism. Buddha said, or this is apocryphal, but it's very plausible. I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. But sadly, the Noble Eightfold Path 
isn't going to recalibrate the hedonic treadmill. It's not going to abolish the horrors of the food chain. The hedonic treadmill, yeah, it's a piece of jargon, but it's it's important. The hedonic treadmill is this suite of negative feedback mechanisms in the central nervous system that stops most of us being very sad or very happy for long. Essentially, each of us has this kind of hedonic thermostat on average, some people's hedonic thermostat is set a bit above hedonic zero, uh, some people a bit below. Tragically, of course, there are some people who are chronically depressed and pain-ridden. But essentially, it has been genetically adaptive to be discontented a lot of the time. Therefore, states of lifelong well-being in nature are rare and dysfunctional. So consequently, in spite of the fact that, you know, looking at human civilization over the past hundreds or thousands of years, civilization in one sense has been transformed. You know, if you if you look around, you know, we have defeated for the most part infectious disease. We no longer have smallpox and some of the horrors of the past. We have an advanced civilization or what we think of as advanced. And yet on average, there's no convincing empirical evidence that most people are any happier or sadder than our ancestors on the African savannah. One needs to just see uh, the incidence of depression, anxiety disorders, chronic pain disorders, all manner of suffering and malaise, purely environmental manipulations to improve our lives can only go so far. And so if we're serious about tackling the problem of suffering, we need to upgrade our reward circuitry. So what would it mean to upgrade our reward circuitry? What would that involve? Well, David thinks biotechnological interventions promise to create a radically improved human condition. In particular, the possibility of genetically modifying our offspring, designing our babies so that they are more able to experience joy and minimise or extinguish pain from their lives. Already we can, thanks to evolution and molecular biology, decoding the genome, even with a handful of genetic tweaks, it's going to be possible to ratchet up hedonic range and hedonic set points. Even before the genome was decoded, we knew from twin studies, that's concordant studies of monozygotic and dizygotic twins, we knew there was a very high genetic loading to something like depression. But neuroscience is now teasing out its biological genetic basis. There are three main strands to David's abolitionist project, his dream of abolishing suffering from earthly existence. The first is getting rid of suffering in humans, and this begins with being more careful about how we conceive children, not through contraception, but genetic modification. For David, designer babies are key to enabling a future of life without suffering. One strand of the abolitionist project, uh, as I would envisage it, is going to entail offering all prospective parents access to pre-implantation genetic screening, counselling, and soon CRISPR genome editing. So they can actually choose the genetic makeup, the approximate hedonic range, hedonic set point, pain sensitivity of their future children. Is this an experiment, a reckless experiment? Well, 
anyone who thinks it is ethically justifiable to bring more life and suffering into the world, and most people today are natalists, is committed to untested genetic experiments. And as a transhumanist, I would argue that if one is going to go ahead with such a genetic experiment, one has a moral obligation to load the genetic dice in favor of one's future children. And something like the SCN9A gene, which so-called volume knob of pain, dozens of different alleles ranging from nonsense mutations to other mutations that confer an unusually high or low pain sensitivity. Um, by nine mutation, one can ensure that one's child has an extremely elevated pain threshold, high pain tolerance, such that, I mean, if you've ever known the kind of person today who says something like, ah, pain, it's just a useful signaling mechanism, we can conserve the function of nociception, but nonetheless ensure that pain is not a significant part of our children's lives. In the case of something like hedonic set points, more genes and alleles are involved, and it's more complicated, but even a handful of genetic tweaks, everything from the COMT gene to the, the far and far out gene, for example, can load the genetic dice so that our offspring have a much, much greater chance to flourish than they can today. Almost any listener is probably thinking, can't all sorts of things go wrong? And most certainly they, they can. But yeah, I just stress once again that right now we are experimenting with kids' lives. And if you're not an antinatalist, then let's try and experiment responsibly. But how realistic is this? Are people really ready to start tweaking with the genetic code of their offspring, especially given the risks David acknowledges? Is society ready to allow this to happen? Most people remain committed to having babies in the time-honoured way. And so long as this happens, depression, anxiety, disorder, pain will persist uh, indefinitely. For us to get rid of suffering altogether, that's, that's quite ambitious because it would entail all prospective parents agreeing to use pre-implantation, genetic screening, counselling, genome editing. I think this is going to happen. First of all, you know, there'll be the, you know, the pioneers. First of all, CRISPR babies, it's going to eradicate the well-known uh, genetic diseases, cystic fibrosis uh, and the like. But I think increasingly it's going to be recognized that various pain syndromes, depression and anxiety disorders are absolutely frightful. So I see... Uh, pioneers will use genome editing and make sure that their kids are happy. I'm guessing that there is going to be essentially a moral revolution, that designer babies are going to become the norm, that all responsible parents are going to want to maximise the opportunity for their offspring to flourish. Personally, I'm sceptical that there will be unenhanced humans around a few centuries from now, because after all, just imagine that you do have the opportunity to create a child who won't grow old, who essentially experiences magical states of sublime well-being indefinitely. Would you choose deliberately to have a brain-damaged, dysfunctional Darwinian child? 
I think it would seem reckless, irresponsible, and dare I say, moral, a form of, of child abuse. The first CRISPR gene-edited babies have already been born, but as David explains, the fallout suggests society is still some way from accepting this future. Yeah, one only needs to look at the controversy surrounding the first CRISPR babies in China. Now, admittedly, they were conceived in uh, unfortunate circumstances. The scientist in question, though normally trying to protect the kids from uh, uh, HIV, was almost certainly trying to amplify their intelligence because the genetic manipulation in question in so-called animal models leads to improved memory, enhanced cognition. He was, he was almost certainly trying to create smart babies. So if the future of post-suffering life is about designer babies, does that mean all of us who have been born via the Darwinian genetic lottery are destined to a life on the traditional hedonic treadmill? Not necessarily. David holds out some hope for us too. What about existing humans? Yeah, well, it is going to be possible genetically to upgrade existing humans too. I mean, we know this from so-called animal models, but realistically, this is still going to be several decades away. The Luxembourg Institute of Mental Health discovered a dual function receptor in the central nervous system that seems to regulate our level of endogenous opioids. And by blocking this receptor, and compounds have already been investigated that have this role, it would be possible to raise default levels of endogenous opioids that mediate hedonic tone in the CNS. So not merely will this potentially have tremendous benefit for victims of depression and pain disorder. In theory, at any rate, it's going to be possible to raise hedonic tone, hedonic set point for existing humans too. Very controversial. This, the history of psychopharmacology is littered with false dawns. What could go wrong? Where does one start? But nonetheless, in the long run, if we're serious about tackling the problem of suffering, as I said, we've got to tackle its biological genetic roots. Just how close are we to a world of designer babies? And how certain can we be that this is the future we are heading towards? The kind of timescale for a complete designer baby revolution, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be at the earliest later this century. It might be next century and beyond. I mean, this is, this is bad politics and PR. And if one is trying to persuade people of an ethical vision, it's really important to stress how either salvation or damnation is going to occur in, in our lifetime, or at least is could credibly occur in our lifetime. And so 2045 or the middle of this century is probably the most effective pitch. And if I were more of a propagandist, I would probably be focusing more on what is going to be happening just in our lifetime. And in fairness, there are tremendously exciting technologies. Uh, as I, I mentioned uh, earlier, this uh, theoretical possibility of ratcheting up hedonic range, hedonic tone of existing people by amplifying our endogenous opioid levels in the in 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 the CNS. But um 
yeah, other points to make, I suppose. Yeah, what about the unknown unknowns? They're going to happen in our lifetime. The revolution, uh, you know, the, the revolutionary breakthroughs in anti-aging research. Uh, you know, even 10, 15 years from now, there will be just jaw-dropping advances in artificial intelligence. Um, but as, as, as has been well said, humans tend to overestimate the significance of change in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. And, uh, yeah, by the middle of the century, probably even uh, later this century, will we still have today's pleasure, pain, access, our existing core emotions? Uh, I would like to think most of this kind of detritus of Darwinian life will disappear into the dust dustbin of history. But I see still centuries of, of, of struggle ahead. And one of the reasons I write the stuff I do is, is in some sense, you know, putting these ideas in the public domain, hoping to accelerate the development. But, yeah, I, I think the death spasms of Darwinian life are going to be pretty ugly, to be honest. <laughs> Optimistic for the longer term, but, yeah, I, I fear the century is all manners of horrors ahead. David isn't just interested in making life better for humans, but for all sentient beings. And he is keen to point out that much of the worst suffering in the world is actually caused by humans through the meat industrial complex. The second strand of his abolitionist project to end suffering focuses on our treatment of domestic animals and livestock. Such concern for animal welfare isn't necessarily typical of transhumanist ideas, Transhumanists are often accused of being anthropocentric, that is, overly human-centred in their aims. But the breadth of transhumanist thought is evidenced here by David's abolitionist project. The bulk of suffering in the living world is not undergone by humans, non-human animals in our factory farms and slaughterhouses, and wild animals, free-living animals in nature undergo all manner of horrors quite routinely. But these two are fixable solutions. On a moral level, I would strenuously urge everyone to go vegan. A pig, for example, is as sentient and demonstrably as sapient as a small child and should be treated accordingly. But one of the facets of transhumanism is essentially technical solutions to ethical problems. And cultured meat, the cultured meat revolution is almost certainly going to lead to a dietary and moral revolution in our treatment of non-human animals. Uh, there was an extraordinarily stu study conducted a few years ago. I didn't believe it until it was replicated, conducted by the Sentience Institute. 47% of Americans, if asked, would favour closing slaughterhouses. Um, I, as I said, I was uh, incredulous. Surely cognitive dissonance can't, you know, it's mind-numbing. Do people imagine that they're eating the functional equivalent of roadkill or something like that? But nonetheless, I think it indicates that when cultured meat is routinely available in supermarkets, uh, essentially it will be possible to shut and outlaw factory farms and slaughterhouses. And uh, I very much hope <coughs> that 
cultured meat is going to be developed and commercialized rapidly. It will also uh, <laughs> diminish the likelihood of terrible global pandemics like uh, COVID if we get rid of animal agriculture. But David does not believe we should stop there. The true work of a transhumanist extends beyond fixing our own suffering and the suffering we directly cause to animals through agriculture and extends outwards towards the wild. He sees nature as red in tooth and claw, an orgy of cruel and catastrophic pain that demands of us benevolent intervention. The final strand of the abolitionist project on Earth is wild animal suffering. And yeah, right now, essentially, non-human animals are slowly starving to death, are being terrorized, being eaten alive, disemboweled. The kind of stuff that isn't typically shown in a David Attenborough wildlife documentary, but the suffering in the rest of the living world is frightful. But for the first time in history, the level of suffering in nature is now an adjustable parameter. We can essentially reprogram the biosphere. That sounds pretty naive. I mean, sure, perhaps one can help large terrestrial vertebrates like African elephants, but what about small rodents in Amazonia or marine crustaceans in the deep, deep ocean? Surely this is complete sci-fi. It sounds ecologically illiterate, but there is nothing that actually stops us technically with recognizable extensions of existing technologies using, for example, CRISPR-based synthetic gene drives to rapidly spread benign genes across entire species. I mentioned a little bit earlier SCN9A, the so-called volume knob of pain. Even if there is a modest fitness decrement for the individual, it is actually going to be possible to rapidly spread benign versions of SCN9A across entire species with a synthetic gene drive. What are gene drives? Gene drives cheat the laws of so-called Mendelian inheritance. They're going to be used, first of all, realistically to defeat vector-borne disease, essentially by making sure that all the offspring of uh, the Anopheles mosquito, for example, are of the same gender. It's possible to drive species of mosquito to extinction, but one can use synthetic gene drives for other purposes too. And before going gung-ho into the rest of nature with these genetic experiments, clearly the responsible, prudent thing to do, if one considers it ethically desirable to reduce, mitigate, prevent, and ultimately abolish suffering in nature, to use self-contained artificial biospheres. So it would be possible to, yeah, actually create a miniature happy biosphere with CRISPR genome editing and gene drives just to show it's feasible. Look at the things can go wrong. But what would paradise engineering mean in practice? Mosquitoes are not welcome, but what of lions and tigers? What about domestic cats? Who gets to decide what this engineered paradise should look like? What about today's so-called charismatic megafauna, lions, tigers and predators and the like? Personally, I wouldn't be sad if all Darwinian life forms were to disappear. I mean, everyone is supposed to like cat videos, but when I see a cat, I see a terrifying serial killer that harms 
terrorizes mice, birds, and causes all manner of suffering. However, most people are aghast at the idea of a living world without members of a cat family, ranging from my little tiddles who wouldn't hurt a fly to uh, lions and, and tigers. And biotech offers us the option of creating essentially a living world in which the lion and the wolf do lie down with the lamb. It's worth stressing the the ancient nature of this vision, Isaiah, peaceable kingdom, a, a living world that isn't based on ultraviolence. And yeah, the Bible is a bit light on the technical details about how this is going to happen, that biotechnology can ink in some of these technical details. But if, you, if we want to preserve record, recognizable approximations of existing obligate predators, we can do so. Now, critic might say that a lion who isn't uh, predating uh, zebras and so forth isn't truly a lion. This is the kind of the species essentialist argument. But one can turn this round and ask the critic, well, are humans who start wearing clothes or go uh, vegan or cease waging wars of territorial aggression, do we cease to be truly human? And if we do, does it really matter? If it really is part of the species essence of a lion to cause the unbearable agony of terror of asphyxiation, does it, you know, <laughs> really? Why should we conserve such horrors? But yeah, we 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 can keep members of the cat family just not behaving in precisely the way that they have have traditionally done. Despite David's belief that we already have most of the technological know-how to make much of his abolitionist project a reality, he thinks it may yet be a long way for such a radical vision to occur. This clearly isn't going to happen any time soon it's not politically realistic but nonetheless looking ahead we've had 540 million years plus of terrible suffering do we want another <laughs> however many million hundreds of millions billions of years of of suffering it's going to be an ethical choice and with power comes complicity whether we like it or not that phrase, with power comes complicity, is an important recognition, especially given the long-held idea that power corrupts. It might give us pause for thought about whether we want such power to exist. It would mean we have no choice but to play God. It also begs the question, who holds this great power? Who gets to play God? Does paradise engineering not by definition mean that only one vision of utopia can define how paradise should be engineered? Would there be room for conflict in such a world? Will conflict, irreconcilable preferences exist in a post-Darwinian world? I mean, one scenario is to imagine post-human life as a kind of glorified analogue of MDMA-like rave or cuddle puddle in which post-humans all commune with each other and there is no conflict as we understand it today in virtue of, let's say, reversible thalmic bridges or mind-melding. Yeah, it's essentially no conflict. Um, but that's only one scenario. 
it's possible to imagine post-human life in which conflict does exist. To give an example, you know, something like a, 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 a game of chess, which is zero sum, and yet ratcheting up the hedonic set points and hedonic range of chess players, yes, it immeasurably improves their default quality of life, but nonetheless, chess can continue to be their favorite game and they can continue to be competitive. And one isn't asking chess players to give up their preferred activity. They don't need to sacrifice their values and preferences on the altar of any other transhumanist conception of the ideal society. And though chess to most of us is quite a, a trivial example, this trivial example can be generalized that by focusing on hedonic uplift gradients of intelligent well-being, one can be neutral about the resolution of conflicting preferences. That it's not a case of telling people that they should be giving up their existing core values and preferences. One is simply ratcheting up default well-being. And so I don't know whether a mature post-human civilization will have anything resembling conflict but what it won't do or at least i anticipate it won't is have any experience below a zero or or yeah essentially any form of, of of suffering while conflict might then feasibly exist there remains the problem that when we talk about making ourselves super intelligent or providing ourselves with the tools to engineer paradise everything becomes a choice but this projects the idea of a singular, free, rational entity making idealized choices and gives it the moniker of we, or humanity, implying the vision would be democratic or inclusive. But would it not really be the case that there is one engineer, or one company, or one government doing the engineering, and the engineered beings, including the lions and designed babies in this paradise, would have their agency stripped away? They would be a facsimile of an agent, pre-programmed to play an acceptable role in a tame drama of a single vision of paradise. Are we not overstepping our role in the world by trying to control every element and accidentally squeezing out important elements of life in the process with all its contingency and messy unpredictability? Yeah, this is the worry about hubris. And <laughs> I wish I would respond that, you know, if one were out and about and one stumbles across a drowning toddler in a pond, one wades in and rescues the toddler. And I think this is true of a member of, of a non-human animal. And I think it is true of, of the rest of the living world uh, more generally. That this, yeah, this this issue of power and complicity and that we recognize that human infants and toddlers need caring for, that it is our obligation to look after and care for them. And tragically, non-human animals in, in nature can't look after themselves. Most non-human animals need very, very short 
painful lives. And it's this question of, of, of our wider responsibility. It would be preposterous, you know, someone who is claiming that toddlers should be uh, liberated. It's paternalist and arrogant for us to claim we know what is in the interests of, of, of toddlers rather than toddlers themselves. And sure, adults can behave deplorably to the very young. They can exploit them, abuse them in, you know, countless uh, ways. But nonetheless, essentially, crudely, toddlers need looking after, and so do non-human animals. Uh, that for now, yes, it's fanciful to talk of rescuing animals in nature as long as we are systematically harming non-humans in animal agriculture. But this is the last century of animal agriculture, thanks to the cultured meat revolution. What then? I asked David, what about the rest of the cosmos and beyond? And what about the idea that this is just one universe in a multiverse? Where should the attempt to end suffering end? As I see it, our responsibility as intelligent moral agents is to work out what are the theoretical upper bounds of rational agency in the cosmos and within what is actually technically feasible for us to do, get rid of suffering within our cosmological horizon. Might this be akin to simply abolishing suffering in one's own little cabbage patch or island? Tragically, yes, uh, it, it might. We, we, we simply don't know. Cosmology is in flux. Physicists uh, disagree. I've played around with the idea that we might need to engage in so-called cosmic rescue missions if pain-ridden Darwinian life exists elsewhere in the galaxy, for example. Then in theory, we could send out probes and rescue pain-ridden life elsewhere. I tentatively, at any rate, inclined to the Earth hypothesis, uh, the so-called thermodynamic miracle. Eric Prexler's term for the primordial genesis of life means that I think probably we're, we're going to be alone. But nonetheless, we keep at options open for our wider cosmological responsibilities so long as we retain intelligence. I mean, we could all just get essentially blissed out, technically at any rate, but by preserving information or sensitivity, preserving a kind of motivational architecture, essentially we circumvent that potential objection. Given David's faith in our capacity to create a blissfully happy biosphere and even joy on a cosmological scale through paradise engineering, it might be surprising that he has suggested before that if there was a button he could press that would end all sentient life, he would hit it, as it would end all suffering. The main moral concern at the heart of David's philosophy of negative utilitarianism is, after all, to end suffering. Here's David to explain. As a negative utilitarian, believer in suffering-focused ethics, or neo-Buddhist, if you like, for me, the, the primary moral concern has always been getting rid of suffering. In spite of my extreme, pessimistic, button-pressing, negative utilitarianism, yeah, I, I, I don't see any fundamental reason to suppose that experience below hedonic zero plays any kind of indispensable role. I, th I think we're just going to get rid of it. Yeah, I do believe in a future of paradise engineering. I think the future is going to be 
unimaginably glorious, but from a purely moral perspective, it's the icing on the cake. We've focused on David's ideas so far today, as few transhumanists, if any, have developed such an extensive vision for super-happiness. However, the pleasure-pain axis does potentially constrain our imagination for what constitutes a full and happy life. The Greek word eudaimonia, which roughly translates to flourishing, has a rich philosophical heritage, and despite centuries of debate about what constitutes the good life, philosophers haven't settled on any final conclusion. There's a danger that looking just to biology to make us happy, rather than asking questions about our purpose, our actions, our ethics, identities and experiences, is reductive and limiting. And inevitably, transhumanists have imagined multiple other ways we could use technology to change and potentially improve our experiences of being human. Here's Emil Torres on some of the other transhumanist visions which seek to improve human flourishing. There's also even some discussion about how cool it would be basically to augment our sensorium you know, by adding new sensory modalities. For example, we may be able to acquire a sensory modality such as echolocation, which bats uh, use, for example, or maybe even magnetoreception. So we can detect Earth's uh, magnetosphere. And the claim is that this could open the door to experiences that are very valuable, new ways of interacting with the, the physical world, and yeah, possibly phenomenological experiences that are novel and valuable. Once we start to think more holistically about the multiple ways we could envision improving our well-being, the danger of one viewpoint becoming the arbiter of what paradise should look like becomes evident. Bob Dode thinks that, when reflecting deeply on the notion of enhancement, we realise there are many different ways we may experience life, and it isn't at all obvious which ways are the best. Is enhancement kind of a relative notion? And yeah, indeed, I mean, a, a good indicator of that is some of the deaf communities view deafness as an enhancement over the hearing communities such that they won't have their offspring who are deaf operated on to recover because they think, and this may well be true, that there are dimensions of their living without hearing that bring unexpected enrichment to life and living and the sense of the world and its possibilities. So I would say absolutely it's a relative notion. Bob Dode is certainly worried about a single vision getting to define the future, especially one that is less empathetic and concerned with the joy of other beings than David Pierce. One of the things I think that's that's dangerous is the presumption of knowing what is perfection, knowing what is the ultimately enhanced shape of human being, because that kind of presumption often leads to an imperative. And you see this in a lot of utopian experiments where like we know what we're supposed to be, and I'm going to force you <laughs> to be what you're supposed to be. And so that notion of having a certainty as if human life 
is a closed system. It is something that has a completeness to it that can be realized in a finite amount of time. We can speed up that movement and we have the technology to do it. And and that turns into an imperative, subtly tends to turn into an imperative to do it. And, and so it can move into all kinds of ugly authoritarian positionings. Even if we somehow avoid such an authoritarian nightmare and somehow maintain liberal values to maximize the choices of individuals to determine what is right for them, the importance of the prevailing social context cannot be underestimated in determining what people may view as enhancement. James Hughes points out that people could choose to engineer themselves in ways that enable them to be more effective in the competitive landscape of capitalism, for example, but that their choices could hardly be considered enhancement for the rest of humanity or for the environment at large. And there are some kinds of things which may or may not be enhancements at all. So, you know, you might be able to eventually turn off your capacity for empathy so that you can be in a more effective hedge hedge fund manager or whatever. And that may not may or may not be an enhancement. It may be an enhancement for a job, but it may be not an enhancement for being a human being. So we have a lot of debates to be had in this domain, especially around neurological enhancement, because um, the issues become extremely dicey. Very few people are willing to deny people prosthetic limbs, their arms or legs don't work anymore, or an exoskeleton or something like that. Um, there's a, a little bit more debate, but still not that much debate about life enhancement, longevity extension. But when you get to uh, changing people's moods, identities, things like that, it becomes very dicey. It's worth stating again that these so-called three supers that we've explored in the last three episodes, super longevity, super intelligence, and super happiness, although highly prevalent in transhumanist discourse, they aren't embraced by all transhumanists. Here's Natasha Vita Moore to point out what is wrong with the notion of super to begin with. She rejects the idea that the three supers represents true transhumanist thinking. The word super is often overused in the mainstream as a type of fanciful exaggeration and is not finessed to actually mean anything definitive for the transhumanist potential of human futures. Rather than a wide, nondescript paintbrush stroke, people must have autonomy and choose how long they want to live, what cognitive upgrades are best for them, and what well-being means to them individually. Indefinite lifespan is optional. Well-being is not one size fits all, and optimum and expanding intelligence offers choices. Natasha here is reminding us of that transhumanist value of morphological freedom, that it should be for each of us to choose what enhancement means for us. But this does draw attention to a potential contradiction at the heart of transhumanism. On the one hand, transhumanists tend to believe in an objectivity to enhancement. For example, that more intelligence is better. This implies hierarchy, that one form of being is better than another. It sees humans as better than monkeys, and that transhumans will be an advance on humans. This supposed objectivity of betterness, of being more, can at least potentially conflict with the ideal of individual choice. 
Furthermore, depending on the social context in which transhumanist choices emerge, individuals may feel compelled to enhance themselves just to keep up. We may face greater expectations upon us as our capacities increase. Would we really be morphologically free in such a context? Despite this question, for other transhumanists, the problem is not the hierarchy implied by the term super, but rather that three of them is simply not enough. Here's David Pierce and David Wood to explain. The transhumanist movement is extraordinarily uh, diverse. Even my typology of the three supers, not, not, not all transhumanists would agree with it. Many, well, I think many would probably add one or two more uh, as supers. And I would put myself in this camp. Sometimes transhumanists emphasize a fourth super, that of super democracy, which is a transformation in our social relationships, saying that our traditional instincts to abuse power when we have more power to deceive each other and deceive ourselves these instincts can be transcended too with the right use of technology so will more technical solutions to ethical problems be the answer can technology enable us to resolve this bind between objective hierarchies individual choice and the social constraints and responsibilities of our political context these are just some of the questions that we will consider in upcoming episodes as we start to think through the very difficult challenges presented by emerging technologies of radical potential. Next time, we will begin to think through the question of politics as we look into how the transhumanist movement emerged to begin with. I'd like to thank my guests today, David Pierce, Emil Torres, Bob Doe, James Hughes, Natasha Vitamore, and David Wood. Thanks also to Matt Black and Darren Sangita for the music in the podcast. Check out their digital album, New Directions and Psychedelic Abstraction. Much gratitude also goes to the brilliant Rob Sell and Paddy Jervis from Torch and Compass for their tireless work on the podcast, Matt Tams for his exquisite A to Z artwork, and Paul McCrudden, the other half of Into the Future. See you next time.